This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. And in this show, we are talking about the largest slave auction in U.S. history. The slave auction was discovered not by a historian, but by a grad student. And I am joined in this hour by the reporter that broke the story. Her name is Jennifer Barry Hawes. She's a reporter reporter for ProPublica. She's also the author of Grace Will Lead Us Home, a book about the Emanuel AME Church shooting. Also joining us is Dr. Bernard Powers. He is the director for the Center for the Study of Slavery in Charleston and a professor emeritus at the College of Charleston. Welcome, Jennifer, and welcome, Dr. Powers. Uh, let me start with you, Jennifer. How did you learn about this grad student's uh, discovery? Well, I learned about it, and thank you for having me. Uh, I learned about it from a couple of people involved with the student's research, one of whom was Dr. Powers, who's with us today, and the other one uh, was a woman named Margaret Seidler, who, with her husband, um, Bob, were involved with funding some training for this graduate student, and I had worked with them uh, on stories previously, and so we had uh, talked about the student's finding. Her name is Lauren Davila. Uh, we talked about Lauren's finding, and um, Lauren wanted to complete her master's thesis discussing it first. And so, uh, you know, I waited until she had done so and uh, and defended it and was getting ready to graduate and then um, was able to to work on the story at that point, which was just a couple months ago. So, Dr. Powers, uh, as Jennifer said, you were involved. Lauren Davila made the stunning discovery while she was a student at the College of Charleston. Uh, according to the reporting, she found an ad for a slave auction larger than any historian had ever identified. Uh, tell us about what Lauren discovered and this ad. Yes. Uh, well, Ariva, thank you very much for uh, inviting uh, me to be on the program tonight. And uh, let me let me give you a little background to this. Uh, so, Lauren. Uh, worked over at the Center for the Study of Slavery in Charleston, which is a part of the College of Charleston. She was a graduate assistant for us and uh, worked on a number of things. And she was conducting research for the center. And one of the things that the center does is it uh, examines the role that the institution of, of slavery and issues of race played in the creation of, of our institution, the College of Charleston. But beyond that, uh, the center also examines the legacy of race that continues to affect us today. And of course, the issues are rooted deeply in the institution of slavery. And so we want to give voice and presence to the variety of places around the city and even on our campus where slavery and issues of race have had an impact. So Lauren, as a graduate student, was working on, on her thesis. Uh, she had a, um, a thesis committee of faculty members advising her, and I would occasionally um, talk with her also. And so I knew about the research that that. Uh, that she was doing. So her finding was essentially a part of that thesis research. And what she was doing broadly was identifying some 
important individuals and some early partnerships or corporations in the city of Charleston, which were engaged in slave trading. And she wanted to identify the places where the trade unfolded, the actual buildings and the areas of the city. And so the thing about slave trading uh, in the 18th century and all the years up until the Civil War and even during the Civil War was that uh, the advertisements for the sale of human beings were placed in the local newspapers. And so she was routinely going through the newspapers, cataloging the various sales that occurred, and uh, she came across this one. And it really caught her attention because uh, until this time, uh, we thought that the largest largest single sale of a group of people had occurred in Georgia, uh, and I believe the date was uh, 1859. It was it was it was in the 1850s, and 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 that figure was I think 436 people. And so when when Lauren saw this advertisement for 600, it obviously really caught her attention. And you know when you're looking at 19th century newspapers, and she was looking on these uh, in microfilm reproductions some sometimes the reproduction can be a little fuzzy right and so she wasn't really sure that she was seeing it seeing the numbers correct and so she really looked very carefully and studied them and yes there it was the figure 600 that's how that this I'm about Wow, that's incredible. And you're right, Dr. Powers, for reminding us we're talking about the sale of human beings, not cattle, not chicken, not, you know, widgets. These are people. So, Jennifer, 600 individuals being sold by whom? Tell us the history. Like, who was selling these people? And if you know, why? Well, at first that wasn't clear. When Lauren found the ad, she was looking at a very brief ad that told nothing about the person who was doing the selling uh, or the people involved. It was just the number, the name of the auction house, and the site of the sale and the dates. Um, But I look back a few weeks earlier to try to find the original ad because often these ads would run for a week or two or so to drum up interest. So I went back and found the original ad, which was actually fairly long, and it was an estate sale for a man named John Ball Jr., who was part of a very prominent uh, family of of plantation owners who uh, owned something like 4,000 human beings over the course of 167 years or so. Uh, So very prominent, uh, if you've ever heard of the book Slaves of the Family by Edward Ball, that's the family we're talking about. Um, So I found this ad, it detailed that this was an auction, part of an estate auction for for his properties, his land properties, but also the human beings that he enslaved on those properties. Um, Then Margaret Seidler, the woman I mentioned earlier, interestingly, she discovered that um, John Ball Jr.'s father-in-law 
sold uh, another 170 people. He died uh, right around the time of John Ball Jr. They, his estate sold 170 people that same week at the same place so that you can then see that the Ball family um, altogether sold about 770 human beings over the course of about four days at this one location in downtown Charleston. Um, so we could learn a little bit about the people who are selling them. What is a lot harder to find is information about the people who are sold, because, of course, the records uh, involving them, uh, you know, basically a first name and a price. So much harder to to discern that information. Um, but I got in touch with Edward Ball, who wrote that book and was in touch still with some of the descendants uh, of the people involved in that sale. And so we kind of put two and two together. He helped me connect with uh, uh, with a man here named Harold Singletary, who um, is a descendant of several of them. It was fascinating to talk to somebody who could then trace his family um, back to this uh, historic sale. Uh, obviously, very uh, you know disturbing for him, and um, um, interesting to see just how that plays forward uh, here in the city with people who still live here. So Jennifer, were you ever able to trace or was Lauren, to your knowledge, able to trace who those 770 people were and where they were sold to? Like, you know, who bought mm -hmm. them? Where did they go? So um, John Ball Jr.'s wife, Anne, purchased about 200, 215 of them uh, herself and um, one of his plantations, or I'm sorry, two of his plantations. So she kept some of those uh, people together and the families attacked. Um, the rest, we don't know. Uh, I found a, a bill of sale um, in some of the John Ball papers um, that show the first names of the people and purchased back. Um, but that's kind of all we know. You know, I hope that an, a historian or another graduate student will come along and do some more of this digging. Um, but as of now, the only ones we know anything about are the the 215 who Anne uh, purchased from that from that auction. So, Professor, how common is this that with these auctions, you might be able to find uh, using these ads who the seller was, who the plantation owner was, but you're not able to find much information about where the individuals ended up, who purchased them. Is that common? It's it's very common, uh, and that is one of the great difficulties of doing African-American genealogy. Uh, before going further into this, though, let me, let me just uh, tell our audience that um, Charleston has, has just, uh, within the past couple of weeks, opened up a new museum. It's known as the International African-American Museum. And uh, one of the sections of the museum uh, which is known as the Center for Family History, has a focus on uh, Black genealogy. And so there are people there uh, who visitors can enlist to help them uh, reconstruct their genealogy and to kind of break through some of the common difficulties that one has in uh, in doing this kind of work. Uh, but yeah, it's... Um, it would not be unusual at all uh, to not know the destinations, the sellers, even, even the names of the people who were sold 
in such a way that 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 a, a descendant would be able to connect back up with them uh, by looking at records. Uh, it's not impossible to do, but so so for example, one of the kinds of sources that could be valuable in this regard would be some of the autobiographies that enslaved people left. Now they're few and far between, but but there are some. Uh, autobiographies, memoirs, and recollections. Sometimes uh, there might have even been uh, short stories, paragraphs, uh, brief narratives uh, that reflected a family's history in a family Bible, for example. And so doing this kind of work uh, is necessarily done in a piecemeal fashion, typically bringing together a variety of different kinds of sources together uh, in a mass to try to reconstruct the the lives of these of these individuals that we're that we're talking about and 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 just to amplify the difficulty uh you know it is only it is only um in 1870 1870 when uh most African Americans who were listed in the federal records were listed by name. Uh, in 1860, for example, the typical way of finding uh, an enslaved African American would have been, it would have been a listing that would have said uh, Negro, male, female, and age, and that would have been it. There would not have been a, a name indicated. Now, I want to talk about the amount of money that we, uh, you were able to discover that Ann Ball uh, paid for the 215 individuals that she purchased, what that dollar amount would be worth today. Uh, and this whole conversation we're having in the country about who benefited uh, from slavery and the sale of enslaved people, because it's not just the plantation owner, uh, but banks and credit unions and other corporations obviously were oftentimes involved in these sales and benefited from them. I uh, want to talk about their role and what that means for today's efforts uh, we see around the country related to reparations when we come forward. Uh, more on KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. So, Jennifer, tell us what Lauren, the graduate student that made this discovery of the largest slave auction in one day, uh, May, tell us what Ann Ball, the woman who you said purchased 215 of the 770 combined individuals who were sold, how much did Ann Ball pay for the 215 people she purchased? And what would that sum be worth today? Sure. So Ann Ball purchased 215 people out of the 600 that the John Ball Jr. estate uh, put up for sale. And she paid $79,855 for those people in 1835. So if you calculate that forward um, in today's money, that would be worth about $2.8 million. Now, keep in mind, Anne purchased, therefore, about a third of the people for sale from her her late husband's estate. If you uh, extrapolate that and you figure she paid about $371 per person 
Uh, if you calculate that across 600 people, that means that that uh, that's that one auction likely netted somewhere around $7.7 million uh, for John Ball Jr.'s heirs, including Anne. So you can see in, in today's money, that's obviously an enormous sum. Yeah, enormous sum to say the least. Uh, Professor, let me ask you this, that approximate $300 or so per person, was that again, a standard price? Did they have a standard price? Did men, you know, get sold for higher amounts than women? You know, and then how did children factor into this in terms of what they were uh, sold for? Sure. Well, uh, the pricing varied and it, it varied over time. It varied based on region. Uh, it based on it, it. It varied based on gender and skill differences, uh, but I can I can tell you three three hundred and seventy one dollars. While that would have been um, not an unusual price point for the eighteen thirties or that time period, by the time you get to the eve of the Civil War, the prices were much higher. Uh, it would it would not have been unusual, for example, to pay uh, eight hundred to a thousand dollars for a a man, let's say, who was a skilled artisan in the prime age, let's say, in 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 the late teens, twenties, uh, the thirties, uh, classified as a prime hand. Uh, and uh, if the person was, let's say, uh, a skilled artisan, like a blacksmith, a brick maker, uh, a millwright who, who worked on machines, uh, and, and, and typically the, the high skills of this kind typically were confined to men, uh, one could have paid $1,500 for, uh, for such a person. Uh, children typically sold for for far less because uh, a child could not really uh, be productive until about 10 years of age. So think about it this way. For the first 10 years of age, a child is not producing anything. They are consuming things. And, and, and so, for example, in... Uh, the early 19th century in what they call the Old Southwest, which today would be Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, children were not particularly valuable during that time period in that place because those areas were first, were, were during this time period, they were being developed for cotton production, which means a lot of Rough work was being done. The land was being cleared. The first plantings were going in. The children couldn't do any of that work. And so they were not particularly valuable during that early time period. And that's one of the reasons why uh, in that old Southwest region in the early 19th century, the rate of infant mortality was much higher than in, let's say, a place like uh, Virginia uh, or Maryland, Kentucky, and so on and and so forth. But the, the prices could vary considerably. And over time, they rose steadily. All right. And so, uh, Jennifer, in your article, you talk about 
who profited from the sale of these individuals, that it wasn't just the, uh, you know, the slave owners, the plantation owners. So talk about who else benefited from these sales. Yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting things and and an aspect that's not really thought about as much out in the general public. Um, so if you think about uh, Lauren Davila, when she was doing this research, she was researching auction houses that were orchestrating these sales. So obviously those uh, those firms uh, made money. They took um, a part of the um, the purchase price. You had companies that um, banks that mortgage those sales, you could buy people on credit. And so a bank would um, you know, provide uh, provide that service for a fee. The newspapers ran advertisements for auctions, for runaway people, um, all kinds of aspects of the slave trade. Um, you had insurance companies that insured enslaved people so that they obviously made money also off of this. There's this whole um, industry and network of people and businesses that made money um, that often aren't recognized. And, and one example I think of a lot is the city of Charleston. And you can look all across the South at this, but the city of Charleston um, taxed enslaved people. So they pulled in money from that. The city had um, something called the workhouse here, which was a place you could um, send a slave person who uh, needed, you know, correction was the term. Um, well, they charged a fee for that. And um, that went to the city. So you can see all of these ways that the city made money. The city would provide a slave badge for an enslaved person to be able to work outside of the purview of, of his or her enslaver. Well, you had to have a badge and that badge cost money that you paid to the city. So there's all these ways in which the city also um, uh, filled its coffers uh, on the back of this institution that aren't often recognized, um, like I said, out in the general public, where you tend to think of, of simply the enslaver um, making money off of a sale uh, or purchasing someone. There was all of the, there was this whole industry um, built up around the institution that enriched a lot of different people um, beyond, far beyond the, um, the enslaver alone. And also, I, I know I read that Lawrence, in, in her research and in her, uh, you know, writings about this discovery, that these men, like John Ball, after they died, they were remembered as, I think one of her quotes is, great Christian men of high value. They were upheld by society. They were, you know, given the utmost respect by the city council. I guess the city council passed a resolution to express uh, their respect for his worth and public service. Was that common, uh, you know, from your research, Jennifer, that these men who were enslavers were treated with such respect and, and held in high esteem? Oh, sure. Very common. And if you go read the biographies of any of any of these men, you'll find the same sort of thing. You know, they were, uh, you know, on the board of um of the you know the the orphan society or they were on the vestry of their church and they were um, all of these amazing things and it'll never say something about oh and they enslaved you know five hundred people uh, that was just not something that was seen at the time as uh, as a negative uh, people you know saw those men as uh, wealthy and um, powerful and important and 
they it's interesting today in Charleston, you'll still hear a lot of those last names and in the sort of social aristocracy of the city. Uh, those names are still very revered even today. It's, it's in my experience only been fairly recently that um, that that people are having a much more honest conversation about uh, what those men's legacies um, really involved. That's that's really fairly recent in my experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the term Professor Slave Dynasty uh, is used because I guess this Edward Ball described his ancestors as wealthy rice land lords uh, who operated a slave dynasty, his words, estimated that his family owned about 4,000 people uh, on mm-hmm. their various properties over you know, an extended period of time. When we come forward, I want to talk about how we are trying to at least some state, some legislators, some educators even, are trying to rewrite uh, America's origin story, uh, America's involvement with slavery, and what parts of the story are being highlighted and what parts are being left out uh, when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. So, uh, Professor, in light of this history about slave auctions, what do you make of these Florida education standards and the way that uh, it's recommended now that middle school and high school students be taught about slavery? Well, this this is very unfortunate uh, because uh, what's being promoted is is absolutely misleading uh, in a number of ways. And and let me just let me just mention a few things about this. So so we've all heard that one of the standards indicates that um, uh, enslaved people develop skills that could bring personal benefits to them. Uh, that's the, and and then Governor DeSantis went on to provide an example, and he provided the example of of uh, the man who acquired the skill of of blacksmithing, and uh, this is something that he could use later later on in life. Uh, two things: first of all, that assertion that assertion uh, suggests that African people who came here had no skills, no talents, no abilities, and what they learned, they learned on the plantation. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I said, the, the governor used the example of blacksmith, but we know, for example, in West Africa, where large numbers of enslaved people came from, uh, there were African blacksmiths. Now, I'm not saying that their that their skills in metallurgy necessarily translated into exactly what they did on plantations here, but I'm pointing out that these are people who had skills before they came. Uh, those who come to coastal South Carolina and Georgia were particularly skilled in the agricultural uh, knowledge that had everything uh, to do with the production of rice. Uh, how else uh, was uh, the uh, the coast of South Carolina and Georgia able to successfully produce rice for international markets were it not for the fact that Africans had had that requisite skill. Certainly the English did not. But the other thing uh, that I would that I would point out is overwhelmingly the uh, enslaved population was an unskilled population. Overwhelmingly. And this is one of the uh, horrible legacies of enslavement, 
that when emancipation came, most people did not have the kind of requisite skills that uh, allowed them to move into higher uh, levels of employment, just as the system of slavery legally enforced uh, illiteracy on the population. And then one final thing that I would that I would point out, there are clear examples of the way in which the system operated to undermine skills. So for example, you could look at people who were uh, skilled individuals, typically men who might have been coopers or carpenters or bricklayers in Virginia or Maryland. And when they were sold down into the Southwest, their skills were not were not valued. They, they were uh, wanted to plant cotton, to pick cotton, and the skills that they might have had in the Upper South were essentially vanquished. And they disappeared because those skills did not have value in what their owners desired them to do as the cotton kingdom took root and really began to develop in, um, in the South. Thank you for that clarification. And I, strange credulity that the historians and educators that were part of that Florida task force uh, you know, don't have or refuse to acknowledge the history that you just articulated uh, and have somehow decided, you know, to talk, to use the kind of language that they're using to talk about resiliency of, of slaves and, uh, re, you know, the resilience of Black people. Uh, but it, it sounds more like, Jennifer, the lost cause movement and other efforts to uh, minimize the aggression and the horrors of slavery. And I do want to ask you, Jennifer, about, you mentioned these people, other entities and individuals that benefited from slavery. What do you make of, of some of the conversations, I don't know if you've written about this, around reparations that are happening, and the fact that there are these uh, public institutions like cities, there are these banks, credit unions, et cetera, that did benefit from slavery because the, the argument, you know, typically against reparations is that I wasn't there. I didn't do it. Uh, you know, why should I be held accountable for actions of, of people who are since dead, et cetera? And there's always this effort to try to put those, quote unquote, those people as the enslavers, as if they were the only individuals involved in profiting from slavery. Yeah, I think this is one of the, the things that people overlook when we're talking about the, the need to understand the country's legacy of slavery is in how that plays forward. It's not only a matter of understanding the horrors of, of the time period that we've been talking about, but it's understanding how that affects our country today. And you can look at any number of measures. You can look at the generational wealth gap would be just a very obvious one. Um, there's uh, clearly huge discrepancies between uh, Black people and white people in America based on generational wealth that's been passed down um, through generations. You could look at something like education disparities in South Carolina, for instance, which is just the one I'm more familiar with. Um, most school districts in South Carolina did not desegregate until 1970. So people tend to think about the Brown versus Board decision in 1954, but the reality is, is schools did not desegregate in 1954. The Southern states fought it and fought it and fought it and delayed and came up with this method and that method. And 
um, wasn't until the 1970 school year began. Well, that's not very long ago. So if you think about um, that prior to that, schools were segregated and that meant black students would not have had access to the same schools that white students did. Um, and so if you look at the time period from then till now, you can start to understand how uh, education disparities in South Carolina play forward. And you can look across any number of measures and see the same thing. So I think that when we talk about slavery, it's important to understand we're talking about this uh, also in terms of how it affects today. And we can't really figure out how to uh, affect education disparities if we don't understand where they're rooted. Same thing with generational wealth. You can go on and on income, health outcomes. We're talking a lot of recently about maternal mortality and the huge differences between um, black and white women when it comes to comes to that. Well, we we don't really understand those problems if we don't understand where they're rooted and why why they persist today. And I, I think that gets really overlooked um, in the debate of uh, what we were just talking about with Florida and education curriculum. But also, um, you know, there's a lot of um, legislation moving through the states, including South Carolina, about how students learn about uh, slavery and if they can feel a sense of responsibility or if they, you know, here you can't teach anything that causes someone to feel discomfort based on their race uh, or responsibility uh, for actions committed by members of the race in the past. And I think that's um, in some ways um, restricting how we understand that history and the way it plays forward isn't that the individual necessarily feels personal responsibility for something someone did a hundred years ago, but you you do have a responsibility, I think, as a citizen of this country to understand where those uh, disparities come from uh, if you're going to attempt to to address them. Yeah, and real quickly, you're running out of time, Professor Powers, but what do you hope uh, comes out of this research uh, by Lauren, the grad student, uh, and the article now that Jennifer has written for ProPublica? What's your hope? Well, uh, one of the things that we are hoping to do at the Center for the Study of Slavery in Charleston is to create a, a publicly recognized uh, zone in the city of Charleston, it would be downtown, in which we I can continue to build on the work that Lauren has done, and that is to identify uh, partnerships and early corporations that were involved in the uh, trafficking in human beings, the slave trade, and also the locations where uh, that trafficking occurred, so that we can we can build tours around them, so that people uh, understand and can see the various locations. We hope to build uh, further research which explores the very kinds of things that we have been talking about uh, today. Uh, this afternoon, moving the institution of slavery from the margins to, in a lot of ways, to the very center of the American economy, uh, American politics, and American life. And not only in the South, but also uh, in the North. And we want people to understand that, for example, Jennifer mentioned the the development of credit markets and mortgages. These are mortgages that were taken out against the lives of people, enslaved people, and sometimes the reach of those mortgages extended across the Atlantic Ocean to Great Britain, for example, and to other places in Europe. So- uh, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, Dr. Powers, we are out of time. Such an important okay. conversation. 
love to have both of you back to continue this conversation. Thank you, Jennifer Mary Howell. She's a reporter for ProPublica and Arthur Grace Will Lead Us Home. Uh, and Dr. Bernard Powers, Director of the Center for the Study of Slavery in Charleston.